we're really thrilled this week to have Niku Asgari from the Financial Times here, uh, a capital markets reporter who's written on a lot of the sort of simmering debt problems, certainly in Europe, but uh, also across a number of emerging market economies. We're really excited in particular to, to talk about Pakistan, but um, hopefully we can have a really wide-ranging conversation and, and maybe talk about um, uh, even wind our way over to Italy by, by the end of it. But Niku, thank you so much for, for joining us. We're really thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for asking me. It's really exciting. Can, can we um can we start really sort of basic and, and with some background maybe uh, uh, about Pakistan in particular, where it seems like there are so many sources of uncertainty, you know, economics, uh, uh, politics, and then of course the recent the recent terrible flooding. Can you just sort of give us some some background into What's going on in Pakistan at the moment? And um, uh, sort of set the stage, I guess, for talking about uh, its uh, its debt. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think to start talking about Pakistan, you have to start a bit wider and look at where the world is right now. I mean, the world feels very fragile, both politically and economically. You've obviously got the war in Ukraine, which is the trigger for a lot of these factors, um, which has led to record energy energy prices record few uh, food prices given that ukraine is a huge um, exporter of grain and wheat which is affecting loads of countries that need that that need the food um and then you know off the back of that inflation is rising so high that obviously the, the food and the fuel is impacting that and it's sort of spiraling from there and governments and central banks across the world are all dealing with how to deal with that. What is the best way of dealing with that? And raising interest rates is the way forward. So you've obviously got the Fed that's done that, the ECB in Europe. Um, And this is all trickling down to various other countries, including obviously Pakistan and as as part of an emerging market country. So with the Fed raising interest rates and all of this global uncertainty, there's a lot of pressure on emerging market countries, including Pakistan, from the dollar, which is usually in times of stress, as we are in at the moment, seen as a safe haven, seen as a good place to keep your money. Um, and the dollar has risen, the dollar index, which is which measures the dollar against a basket of other currencies, is up 17% so far this year, which is a lot. And this makes it really difficult for countries like Pakistan, which have dollar denominated debt and so they need to pay their coupons in dollars to repay that because obviously the dollar's gone up and they need to pay even more than they would have thought previously or at the start of the year say um so pakistan is facing pressure from that from the dollar and then also from the cost of importing food and fuel as i mentioned because of um, russia's war in ukraine so that's sort of the backdrop for where it is at the moment, or where it was sort of the middle of the year. So, Niku, welcome to our podcast. And I, I'm so glad we started out with Pakistan. And I hope you don't mind if I ask follow up by asking about some of the complications that we imagine are present for Pakistan, but you probably have a better sense of which of those various complications 
are likely to manifest themselves in any upcoming crisis resolution. So as background, my understanding from having watched Pakistan go in and out of near default scenarios multiple times over the past few decades that Mark and I have worked on the sovereign debt markets, is that their geopolitical importance means that the US and the IMF will often step in to make things okay. And if not, there will be additional financing for um, a number of the countries in the Middle East, or at least from rich investors who want to support some aspects of uh, Pakistan. So that that sort of background, and that might or might not be true, but that's um, has always been my outside observer's lens on this. This time, my understanding is that the situation is even more complicated because Pakistan has borrowed a lot from China. And China's involvement has been complicating multiple restructurings that are going on now. And I just, I don't understand how the Chinese involvement changes the normal geopolitical dynamic that would play out with Pakistan, given that it's a nuclear power in a rather crucial part of the world in the context of a war situation with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, you're completely right in the fact that Pakistan is strategically, politically important, especially to the US. We had, obviously, Sri Lanka this summer was the defaulted uh, and was a major default, but, you know, it was allowed to default. It wasn't sort of, it wasn't seen and it isn't seen as politically or strategically important. Obviously, as you say, Pakistan has nuclear um, power as well. And when I was covering the crossover of the Sri Lanka default and, you know, worries about Pakistan and speaking to investors and analysts, they were all saying exactly what you're saying, that, Yes, the situation in Pakistan is bad. You know, the foreign reserves have been drained. The trade deficit is widening because of, you know, these soaring food and fuel prices and all of these imports. But they were all unanimous in saying that it is unlikely that Pakistan will go the same way as Sri Lanka because it is so strategically important and politically important. And, you know, the US, the IMF and various Arab countries would all help keep it afloat, whether by you know, offering financial support um, either themselves or through the IMF. Um, and on China, again, yes, you're right. I mean, the China, some of Pakistan's largest creditors include Chinese lenders. Um, I think the latest figure I saw was about 30 billion that is, um, that is lent to Pakistan from Chinese lenders. And that's mainly, I think, through... Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative and various investments that it's done um, in Islamabad and other and other cities, um, but I'm not I'm not well versed enough in how that sort of plays in, as you say, to alongside the U.S. interest in Pakistan. Obviously, China has all of this financial interest, but I think overall, it's in everyone's interests that Pakistan doesn't default, and you know they 
reached a 1.1 billion IMF deal um, earlier this summer, and it seems that they're, well, they were at least before the floods happened, heading towards, um, you know, working that out and, and staying afloat. So, Nico, if, if you don't mind, and maybe I can turn this to Mark as well, I'm just just throwing this out. Uh, and there, there, there are multiple aspects of this that I've been uh, meaning to ask Mark about and just haven't gotten a chance, but I'll, I'll throw it to both of you. One of the, so I see two complications or maybe three uh, here and maybe I won't lay them all out, but at least one of them. So there seems to be, I mean, the Chinese involvement is large. Yes. large compared to the IMF package and large compared to Pakistan's overall debt stock. That means that if the U.S., uh, through its influence at the IMF and through its influence elsewhere, provides, let's say, a package that keeps Pakistan afloat, a lot of that money is going to go directly out to Chinese holders. And this is not going to be politically palatable in the US. It also potentially complicates the noises that Paris Club creditors like the US are making in other restructurings that are ongoing right now, and uh, Sri Lanka comes to mind, where th they're jumping up and down about how they, you know, they they need to know about what China's involvement is, so that you know their money doesn't go to pay China, and China's reluctant. And so the the Chinese involvement here and the large holdings seems like it could really pose an impasse for the usual pattern of behavior in terms of saying, you know, you're really important. We're just going to give you the money and keep you afloat uh, because we don't want your government to fall. And we, we don't, we, we just don't, we can't afford chaos in Pakistan. So I give it to both you and Mark. And uh, uh, again, my question is not coherent, but, but this worries me. Yeah, no, I, I, I follow. Yeah. Because you're right, the uh, yeah with Pakistan, China is its largest creditor, and the IMF money, as you say, will inevitably a portion of that go there. Yeah, I'm not I'm not well versed enough to say what yeah, but you, what the likely outcome of that is. But to me, it seems, I guess it I guess it depends on whether for the US, it's more important that Pakistan doesn't default than it is. That it is in some part funding its, you know, Chinese initiatives, um, but how they make that decision, I have no idea. So one one of the things I, I was hoping to shift this in a slightly different direction, I guess. Um, although although Mitu's question kind of prompts uh, another that's a bit related. We had been had been talking beforehand about the fact that. Um, as far as you can tell, a, a portion of the international bond debt is also held in China, which was a which was a surprise to me. Do I do I have that do I have that right? And and do we have a sense of 
how large that portion is or who the holders are. Um, I guess, so I guess that's that's the first question. Uh, can can you tell us a little bit more about China's role as a or, or the role of Chinese entities and investors as bondholders rather than simply a, through loans that are made as part of the Belt and Road Initiative? And then I'm kind of interested just in the sort of what the the market reaction to Pakistan uh, and Pakistan's bonds are now. Post flood, there was there was an improvement after the IMF disbursement, but then I have to assume that all of that has gone away. Yeah. So on your point about China, I mean, it is a bilateral creditor, and then I believe also a, a bondholder as well, as well as other countries that have lent to Pakistan, like Japan and France, and then commercial bondholders, whether in the US or UK or otherwise. And then in terms of the situation now, so. You're right, the bonds were performing really badly um, before the IMF deal was agreed. And then they recovered on the back of that deal and the prospect that, you know, an agreement would be made and Pakistan wouldn't default. But then the floods happened and affected millions of people and created billions of dollars worth of damage. Um, And the bonds have since fallen again. And it's kind of prescient that we're speaking today because I looked earlier and Pakistan's prime minister, Shehbaz Sharif, he went on TV this morning um, and called on rich countries to give Pakistan debt relief. And a quote, I will quote from him, and he said, all hell will break loose if there's no relief, which you can't really put in stronger terms than that. Um, So because the country is obviously grappling with billions of dollars worth of reconstruction costs and damage and essentially rebuilding after the floods while also teetering on the brink of you know potential default or midst a deal with the IMF and what will happen there and they simply can't afford to service both issues and pay both issues um, and its bonds it's so it's 21 of its 2022 dollar bonds is maturing this December and it dropped um, after he went on TV and said, you know, asked for debt relief, it dropped to trading at about 82 cents on the dollar, while its 2031 dollar bond um, slumped to 40 cents on the dollar, which gives you an indication of, you know, how badly they're trading and how investors are looking at this. If the prime minister is going on TV asking for debt relief, it seems like they are really, really desperately in need of it. Yeah, th- this is this is pretty amazing uh, since. I also saw an article, I I think it might be in the FT uh, this morning, and maybe it was from a couple of days ago that uh, I just hadn't noticed it, but about a UNDP paper that affirmatively advocated for Pakistan to ask for debt relief and also suggested that Pakistan seek climate-related debt relief where investors would take haircuts in exchange for Pakistan using the money that they save for climate-related sort of projects, I think. And uh, Mark and I have talked a lot about the Belize 
deal that was done relatively recently. Uh, I think there was news just yesterday, maybe, about a Barbados blue bond deal with the Nature Conservancy. But all in all of those deals, uh, the climate part, laudable though it was, was small and at the margins. This UNDP report seems to envision significant debt relief coming from investors out of the goodness of their heart or out of concerns for the environment. And, uh, you know, I want to be positive about the, the willingness of investors to help save the world. But I mean, I, I read that article and I'm like, what drugs are you on people at the UNDP that you, you expect this? I mean, it's a maybe you can get a little deal at the Nature Conservancy, but do you really think that BlackRock and State Street yeah. are going to take haircuts in, in exchange for Pakistan doing this? I, I don't know, Mark, I don't know, Niku, whether you uh, read that and had a similar reaction that this is... This is something else is going on, as my mom used to say. There's something black in the lentils here. Yeah, no, you're you're right. That story was written by my colleague um, Ben Parkin in Mumbai. I think he uh, he is at the moment. Um, and I'm with you on that. I mean, for all the ESG sheen and shine and wanting to do, as I say, goodness, I don't see yeah massive pension funds or others just sitting back and saying yeah that's fine we will forego our debt repayments and you build some you know whatever it might be climate resilient buildings or, or flood resilient buildings I don't really see that happening that might be the cynic in me but I'm with you on that for sure it doesn't seem all that cynical I feel like it's a bit more realistic um I mean it's interesting because Sri Lanka was sort of seen as if it might be a test case for whether the kind of debt for nature type deals that we saw in Belize could be done at scale. And and Pakistan, you know, the idea on this report is that Pakistan could really be a test case for scaling it. It's just, you know, the Belize deal works because there's a there's official money behind it and there's the nature conservancy behind it. And you know that's the thing that has to scale and it's not it isn't going to uh, be a function of the kindness of investors hearts or the their their longing to devote some of their uh, their resources to improving climate prospects but in any event maybe we should take a short break and when we can when we come back we can talk uh, about some of the many many other debt hotspots in the world Mark, may I, Mark and Niku, may I just mention a couple of other things, even if though we don't talk about them, just to put them on the table for future podcasts, or at least for us to think about, uh, about Pakistan, because I, I want to move to the world more generally. But there are a couple of other things that we haven't seen talk about. And the one in particular that I, I wanted to put on the table has to do with Pakistan having a Sukuk financing out there. And 
my understanding is that we've never had a sukuk restructuring. Sukuk sovereign bonds are a relatively new creature, maybe 2008, 2010, thereabouts is when this started, at least in the bond market. The, the, you know, these contracts are kind of weird because, well, no offense to uh, people who do this, uh, weird for me just because they have a religious aspect uh, in the contracts. And I'm, I, I've tried to read the documents and I can't really follow how a restructuring between the sukuk and the regular bonds would happen. And to add to this, my sense is that sukuk investors are going to be investors from particular types of sovereign wealth funds, mostly in the Middle East. And so that there might be an interest in treating them better if the contracts allow it. Now, I'm sure we'll get lots of emails telling me that I'm completely full of it, but I'm just putting it on the table. And if folks who listen to this have nice, coherent answers to educate me, I'd be most grateful. But let's go to the break. Niku, my my plan was to start the second half by asking about Italy, where there is so much going on, and I definitely want to get to Italy. But there was another development in Europe this morning, uh, at least it came to my attention this morning, in the UK that uh, had a pretty significant effect on the price of gilt. And, and I'm wondering if maybe we can we can start there. What um. What is the 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 trust government up to, and what effect is it having on on the UK bonds? What is the trust government up to? That's a great question. The trust government has today laid out a they're calling it a mini budget because it's not in the typical window of when we have our autumn budget um, of essentially huge tax cuts, um, unlike tax cuts that we've seen in since I think the 1970s or 80s. It's a 45 billion pound package of tax cuts, including scrapping the 45%. We have a 45% threshold of income tax for the highest earners, those earning over 150,000 pounds. That has gone. Um, there was a cap on bankers' bonuses. That has gone. Just a whole bunch of measures um, that the government has developed in an attempt to stimulate the economy and increase growth and investment because the UK, like the rest of Europe, um, has got record inflation. We are heading likely into a recession or already in a recession, some people predict. Um, And our government has decided that the best way to deal with this is to cut taxes and you know boost the economy but this is going down really 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 badly in the markets the you know the bonds have fallen sterling has fallen to a 37 year low um there's just a huge political gamble um and a huge change in economic policy at a time when the country is already we've got a cost of energy crisis a cost of living crisis and this threatens to make that and make inflation worse for longer. Niku, I I want to ask about 
the, you know, almost the dominoes in Europe, but I can't help but ask a follow-up question on what's happening in the UK and the logic behind what the trust government is doing, because after all, as I understand it, the choice was made to go with the trust logic, trust economic logic, instead of Rishi Sunak, who my sense is wanted to constrain things more because he was worried about precisely these kinds of knock-on effects. So what, what is their economic uh, theory behind this? Is it some kind of sort of Reagan supply side logic or, you know, what, what's that kind of nutty modern monetary something? Oh, I shouldn't call it nutty because, you know, some people actually believe it, but yeah. is this some kind of like, do they have a theory or is it just like, we're just going to say our prayers and gamble for redemption? It sort of feels like that, but no, I mean, I think that the logic is, well, Liz Truss has said publicly that, you know, she looks at Margaret Thatcher and Thatcher's types of economics. And this plan is just ultimately designed in their view to stimulate the economy. And she thinks the way, Trust thinks that the way out of our current situation is to cut taxes, to boost, you know, people's spending and cut corporation tax all these sorts of things and the worry is and obviously the markets agree because you know sterling and gilts have fallen today the worry is that this is just going to make inflation worse you know if you've got bankers who are now paying 40 percent instead of 45 percent tax on their huge salaries and then getting huge bonuses and then going out to spend them it's going to, you know, worsen inflation. And then there's also this huge divide where those earning far more, the, the, the top percentage of the population are benefiting so much more than the bottom half of the population from these policies. But they're just really sticking to their guns that these policies will, you know, boost the economy and are the best way forward. But obviously markets strongly disagree. And if, you know, we're going to talk about the gilts. They've just sold off this morning. The 10-year gilt has hit 3.77%. Um, sterling fell to less than $1, 1.10 against the dollar. And that's the first time since 1985. It's sort of, those are the levels that we're comparing ourselves to at the moment. So maybe we can switch to an, uh, another, even nuttier, in my view, um, uh conservative right-wing better word um a potential government in italy and and i guess bef- so the election is coming up and i and i want to not, not not just right wing apparently they're devotees of the lord of the rings and like dress yeah up like I, I, I find the political valence of that a little i bet i bet the both poles of the spectrum, maybe you can find some of those people, but it's it's like wacky flavor text, right? Um, anyway, um, so like I want I want to talk about the uncertainty uh, caused by the election, but I also just want to ask a broader question about the relationship between Italy, on the one hand, and Europe, and maybe the Euro area in particular, on the other. This sort of sick codependency where it seems like the the ecb is just engaging in de facto spread control and maybe there are 
there really are no other buyers for Italy's bonds. Is that is that going to persist in perpetuity? Do you think? Uh, does the election have some potential to change that? That is the ECB's behavior. Like, what what do you kind of foresee for the future for Italy? Yeah, so I'll start with the elections, which um, are on Sunday, and it's you know widespread. The polls are predicting that, as you said, there'll be a really far right government um, led by this lady called Giorgia Maloney, who is the president of this far right party called Brothers of Italy, and there will likely be a coalition um, with Matteo Salvini. Um, so just overall, a far right, very right wing um, Italian government is expected to come in come Sunday, Monday. Um, and the if you look at the markets, the one I checked before this, um, before our call, the 10 year benchmark bond of Italy is at 4.25%. That's the yield, which is nearly very close to a nine-year high that it hit in June of 4.27%. And that was right at the peak of um, worries about Italy's spread um, and you know, rising interest rates as the ECB was raising rates and following the Fed in order to tackle inflation, as we've talked about. But these are just worries about, at the moment, worries about this new government coming in um, and whether they will be able to or will want to, although they have reassured and said we will stick to EU budget rules and stick to fiscal discipline um, and because Italy's you know since the you know past decade has been a sort of an outlier or a as you said there's a sort of sick codependence in the EU and has been an outlier and the ECB's had to keep a close eye um, on Italy and the spread now between Italian and German 10-year debt is at 2.25 which 2.5 is seen in the market as a sort of trigger point and a really point of no return, which Italy really nearly reached this summer as the ECB was raising rates. And then the central bank came out and said, no, we have a tool in place to prevent you know, spreads widening as they raise rates. The worry is that you have really strong com- countries in Europe. You've got, say, Germany, obviously, France and others. And then you've got at the end of the spectrum, Italy and Spain and Greece are also into that pile who are just at risk of their their bonds and their spreads really widening. Um, and the ECB's kept a really close eye on that to the point where they created this transmission protection instrument and said, we have this tool where if spreads, they don't, they haven't set a number, but it's just expected that it's 2.5. If spreads widen too much, we will step in and we will, you know, prevent this fragmentation and this huge sort of widening between the the strong and the weak, essentially, in Europe. Just wondering about the underlying politics or the dynamics of the underlying politics. It's one thing to expect the ECB and Christine Lagarde and folks at the highest levels there basically following Mario Draghi's leadership on the whatever it takes, Mm -hmm. we're just going to do whatever it takes to keep things going. That was a policy born out of 
European solidarity and really under Draghi's leadership. Right now we have this, uh, I don't know, is neo-fascist the right uh, word or uh, Euroskeptic? Euroskeptic seems way too polite, but they're not pro-Europe. They're, they're not pushing in the direction that I would think that the, the Northern European countries uh, want to support. And they show very little indication of moving towards the fiscal restraint that uh, the Northern Europeans want to see from Italy. I mean, the debt stocks are just getting larger and larger. It doesn't feel like this. the, the markets are, are going to react uh, in a particularly positive way to upcoming developments. Instead, to me, and uh, you probably realize already that I'm a doomsday uh, person, <laughs> my version of Lord of the Rings is, uh, is that doom is coming and it's just around the corner. But uh, the English spreads, I mean, the Italian spreads strike me as far uh, sort of just, just on the brink of exploding. And this time, there isn't going to be the ability to bail them out like uh, Greece was bailed out. And if we remember correctly, it took a damn long time to fix things in Greece. And that was a relatively small European country. Italy could swallow the rest of us. Oh, yeah. Question mark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the fundamental issue of, of you know, Europe's monetary union of having these, mainly Germany, really, these strong countries prop up and fund and politically, you know, it's not very appealing for them to have to do this to Italy at least once, maybe again. Um, yeah, the spreads are going to be interesting to keep an eye on the spreads come Monday when the markets open after the result of this election, because although it's you know, widely expected. Today's UK mini budget, a lot of it was widely expected and obviously the markets reacted so badly. So, you know, who knows how far they'll widen. But there's no really easy answer to what the, the politics is because they're in this monetary union um, and they have to stick together. And Christine Lagarde is very aware of that. And hence why she came out and made this instrument in the summer to ease the market's worries and say, no, look, we've got our eye on Italy. We know um, and we've we're ready if if needs be. And that was enough. Just, you know, they haven't had to use the tool. And even before they said that it what it was called and they said that they were just creating something to keep an eye on the spreads, the market eased. And they're, you know, they're aware how much of an issue it is. I mean, it seems like for the most part, the market's been willing to take the ECB's commitment to keep spreads manageable seriously yeah. and, and not to call it into question but i don't know i mean i i me too is more of a doomsday person than i am but i i kind of worry as the political disconnects get greater and, and are exacerbated by you know maybe less cohesive policy with regard to russia and and all of the things that we might expect um uh, from a, a new government in italy are, are there signs of 
uh, sort of turmoil in Spain, Greece, uh, other countries where we would sort of expect the the sort of investor panic to start spreading? Do you know how much of a concern that is for for folks in the market or for for the ECB itself? Just far less a concern than Italy is at the moment, even before you know the weekend before the elections as we are now um italy is just front and center you, you know when i speak to investors and analysts about these peripheral um you know bond markets uh, but sorry peripheral countries of the european bond markets italy is just the top that's the one that they're looking at that's the one that is the yeah the the main indicator and the main one that they have their eyes on just politically obviously um and over concerns about, yeah, fiscal restraint, as you said. Well, we're going to have to have you back maybe maybe as soon as Monday, (laughs) (laughs) if we can persuade you to do that. But if not, then soon, because I have a hard time seeing any of this getting better in the near future. In fact, it seems likely to get substantially worse. I don't, going back to Pakistan, I don't see how you avoid a major restructuring in the near future. And if Italy goes bad, that's going to be the mother of all that problems. Uh, So um, we will see, but uh, hopefully we can have you back to share more of your insight and expertise uh, when, when these things either do go bad, or at least we have some further developments. Uh, Thanks so much, Niku. Thank you for having me.